I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Today we will be finishing the book of Isaiah in chapters 60 to 66. So Isaiah chapter 60 to 66. What's the most disappointing gift you've ever gotten? For a lot of kids, it's clothes, right? Uh, like socks, you know. When you go to your family's house and you pick up the present and it's light and it's like that long rectangle box, you know that there's a shirt in there, right? There's no messing around and you're immediately disappointed by it. I remember the excitement of Christmas morning, getting up and getting all these great presents. And then, um, you know, then we would go to one of my grandma's house, right, to open up presents with her. And, and I still have the anticipation of for all these gifts. But, but it never failed that she always gave us grapefruit and oranges. Sadly, for my Mimi, we never used them for vitamin C. We just used them to throw at each other. But as a kid, one of the most disappointing gifts I ever got was savings bonds. Savings bonds. I had one great-grandmother who, birthday or Christmas, never failed to give us savings bonds. Talk about disappointing. Oh, yes, it's money. It's money, honey. I, you know, it's, it's money that you get to use in 20 years. That's not what an 8-year-old wants to hear. At this point, though, I'm actually really grateful for those savings bonds. They've matured by now. But one of the hardest things as a kid was to realize the value of savings bonds, right? They were so far in the future that it didn't seem to matter. This is so far away. What's the point of giving us this money when it's so far away? But now that that day has come, it matters a lot that I have savings bonds, and, and not only now do I realize how smart it is for my great grandmother not to give us money that I would waste to waste on like Game Boy stuff, but now I'm actually like using it toward like lawnmower repair. So thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Grandmother Graves is what I called her. But, but it's really hard to grasp something that seems so far in the future, right? It's hard to, it's hard to really think something is, it matters. Or is it really important when it's so far into the future? And that's what this section must seem like to Israel, right? Israel, at the time Isaiah is writing, they're still in exile, right? They haven't returned to the land. And in this section, God gives them a vision of the future. A vision of the year of his favor and the day of his judgment. God gives them a vision of the future, a vision of the year of his favor and the day of his judgment. One day, God will restore and exalt his people. The days ahead will be so glorious and so astounding that days of pain will be remembered no more. That must seem like a long way off for these people who feel pain, who are captive, captives by their enemies, by a foreign enemy. With savings bonds, realizing the value of them as a kid didn't make much of a difference because in the end, I end up reaping the benefits. Whether I appreciated them at the time or not, I still get savings bonds. I still get money. But the day of the Lord's return is not like that. It's only when I realize and understand now the great significance of that day later will I be prepared. 
If I linger to understand, it will be too late. Because it will end up costing me terribly in the end. So I'd like us to turn now to our Bibles and grasp the significance of what God has in store. That what comes later would mightily impact how we live now. So, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 61, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring of the the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This section in Isaiah has two main focuses, uh, what I call favor and judgment. And, and Isaiah cycles through these two focuses. At first, starting slowly, right? Giving a, a focus, a couple of chapters to each focus. Uh, but then by chapter 65, he only gives a few verses at a time to each. So he's, he's kind of gaining speed as he goes along and he cycles through them. And so chapter 61, what we just read is, is kind of the, the theme chapter. But if you look back at chapter 60, the focus there is is on favor. In chapter 60, the focus is on favor. And that favor, first of all, brings the nations to worship. God's favor embraces the nations. So look at chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. What God promises that 
it, it, what he promises is that instead of the nations taking you captive, the nations are going to come to you. Instead of you being captured and captive by the nations, the nations will come to you. I, I think of the little country Lesotho um, that's completely land by, landlocked by South Africa. I mean, it's a tiny nation. And it's, it's caught in the sway of global pandemics and, and global economies and wars beyond its control. And it's, it's kind of swayed by this, these global happenings. And it'd be like God telling Lesotho, one day you will sway the nations. You, oh tiny nation, will sway the nations. If you read this whole chapter, the overwhelming focus is how God will bring the nations to Israel. So chapter 60, verse 5. Verse 5, then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Verse 9, for the coastlands, the nations shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar. their silver and gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because he has made you beautiful. And then in verse 16, you shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. God designed Israel to be a blessing to the nations. And God accomplished that by making Jesus, the true Israel, a blessing to the nations. Before we are ever Missourians, before we are ever Americans, we are the church. That is our identity before all other identities. And in Christ, it is now the church's role to bring that blessing to the nations. It is now our job to be a blessing to the nations. So whether it's us going to them as missionaries or them coming to us, God wants to save the nations through the work of his church. So American, Midwestern, Southern, Northern, Mexican, African, Russian, foreigner, drug addict, refugees, yes, even illegal immigrants, God wants to save them because the legal status of people is not a barrier to his grace. This is still his purpose, and it's only if we fully grasp that now will we partake in the joy of it later. It's only when we grasp that now will we be able to fully partake of the joy of it later. We have a good bit of ground to cover. So as we move to chapter 61, God's favor not only embraces the nation, God's favor brings redemption. Brings redemption. This chapter, as we read at the beginning, might sound familiar, actually, as, as we read at least the first part of it. That's because Jesus, he quotes these first two verses in Luke chapter 4. And so what's interesting, though, is that when Jesus reads the first part, that Jesus, when he gets up to read, he reads the first part of verse 2. So, so he reads to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but he stops right there. He doesn't go on to talk about the day of vengeance for our God. And that's because in Christ, the time of favor has begun, but the day of vengeance has not yet come. Right? That's why he stops right there. This is the time of God's favor. The day of his vengeance, day of his vengeance has still yet to come. 
It's like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Right? That's the period we are in with Christ as coming as a period of God's favor. But I want you to notice something about the interesting change of vocabulary here in Isaiah. Isaiah in verse 2, he, he calls it the year of the Lord's favor, but the day of God's vengeance. The year of the Lord's favor, but the day of his vengeance. A year is longer than a day. And in other words, what I think Isaiah is saying is God's desire to bless far surpasses his will to condemn. God's desire to bless far surpasses his will to condemn. It's just like when God called Abraham in Genesis 12. Listen to what God says to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, plural, but the one singular who dishonors you, I will curse. So God is much more desirous of blessing all nations than his will to actually condemn them. God judges, yes, he does, but he is far more willing to bless and to lavish because mercy triumphs over judgment. When I came out of my lifestyle of sin in college, I, I really struggled with whether God was willing to forgive me. I, I felt like a lot of my prayers were trying to convince God to just forgive me. But a very good friend of mine had to remind me that, that God wants to forgive you. God wants to forgive you. He's not reluctant to forgive. He, he wants to forgive. So Isaiah 30, verse 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He longs to be gracious to you. What this means is that God redeems. He redeems poverty. He redeems heartbreak. He redeems blindness and cancer and sickness and hurt. He binds up wounds. Do you believe that about God? Do you believe that God redeems all of those things? Jesus said, blessed are the have-nots. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the outcast and the rejected. If God took everything away from you, could you say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be his name. Because it's only when we cling to that by faith, now will we be completely redeemed later. It's only when we can say that now, that God redeems now, will we be able to say it fully and completely and finally later. God's favor embraces the nations. God's favor brings redemption. Thirdly, God's favor unites in marriage. God's favor unites in marriage. Flip over to chapter 62, and I want you to look at verse 1. Chapter 62, verse 1. Let's read verses 1 to 5. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. 
you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. When Mallory and I first got married, we, we knew too many people our age who got divorced after one, two, three, four years of marriage. And it really has been heartbreaking to watch, see like people that we know like really closely just give up. You know, they get divorced in marriage. And, 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 and the thing is, though, humans give up too easily. When you get married, you feel like at first you're, you're with the world's perfect person, right? This is my best friend. I can't wait to start this adventure with him. But then, but then it's not long before reality hits and you realize that this person's not perfect. You know that you're promising to spend the rest of your life with the person standing in front of you, but you don't know who that person standing in front of you will be 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 30 years from now or 40 years from now. You don't know that person that you're covenanting with. God's not like that. God knows exactly who you are. God knows exactly who you will be. And in Christ, he marries you anyway. He knows all your sins and all your baggage and all the ways you will fail him, all the ways you will falter, and all the ways you'll wander away in faithlessness. But in Christ, God stays committed to you, faithful to you. You deserve to be called forsaken. You deserve to be called desolate. But instead, verse 12 of chapter 62, and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Flip over to chapter 65 really quickly. Chapter 65, verse 17. God says in chapter 65, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mine. When you get married, you need a new place to live. You need a new place with your spouse to live and, and build a new life together. The new heavens and the new earth are like a new house for a married couple. Revelation 19 calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you move in. You move into your house with your, your new spouse with a feast. God's favor unites in a glorious marriage. And his favor, it brings redemption. His, his favor, it embraces the nations. But the thing is, you have to be married now. You can't put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off. You can't live as though you're not married. You have to give your life to Christ now. Otherwise, as we learn in this passage, the sobering reality is not favor, but judgment. And God's judgment brings wrath. Look, flip back to chapter 63. Chapter 63, verses 1 to 6. Who is this who comes from Edom 
and crimsoned garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Charles Spurgeon said, if you think lightly of hell, you will think lightly of the cross. Our view of heaven matters just as much as our view of hell. If we think lightly of hell, we will think lightly of sin. Uh, We will think lightly of our lives and and the weight of our souls. We will think lightly of the decisions we make. We will think lightly of others and the destination of their souls. You can't take marriage seriously while treating divorce lightly. True marriage takes threats to it seriously in anything that might cause its end. Likewise, you can't take Jesus and his gospel seriously while treating his wrath lightly. The thing is, if thoughts of hell never terrify you, if the wrath of God doesn't cause you to shudder, If sin doesn't bother you, if you never take time to consider the true cost of sin, then you'll never be driven to Christ in desperate repentance. You can cover up this fear, this wrath, this shuddering with worldliness. You can cover it up with fleshliness and and pleasure and comfort and ease. But one day you'll find that it's too late. If you don't think about it now and respond to it now, you'll be forced to face it in its full, terrifying reality. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God's judgment brings wrath, and it's only when we fully grasp that now will we ever be able to escape it in the future. So don't ignore it. Don't wait until tomorrow you must repent now today today God's judgment brings wrath but his judgment also brings justice flip over to chapter 64 and look at verses 1 to 7 oh that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for them. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry and we sinned. 
in our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. In the midst of of writing about God's wrath, Isaiah prays. Uh, And Isaiah prays and pleads for mercy because he knows that God's wrath is what they deserve. God's wrath is what they are headed for unless God intervenes. And in this prayer, God want, or Isaiah wants God to bring justice to light. One way I like to describe our current um, time in the world is that we live in a confused and confusing world. The world is both confused and a confusing place to be. Sexual abuse is rampant even as it has come out about Southern Baptist churches in the past couple of years. Racial tensions are at an all-time high as the world literally burns with the anger and hurt that black men are still killed without consequence. Nobody knows what to believe anymore because lies come from every direction on both sides of the aisle. Nobody seems to care about hypocrisy anymore. It's all just attacks and outrage. But our prayer should be with Isaiah, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Take all that is wrong and turn it into right. Reveal your truth to the world and rid the world of hypocrisy and justice and racism and white supremacy and dictators and mass shootings and evil. Oh, God, rend the heavens. Rend the heavens. Being married to Christ means caring about the thing that Christ cares about. But it's human nature not to. It's human nature not to care about the things that Christ cares about. And Jesus, he cares about injustice and hypocrisy. He hates hypocrisy. Jesus cares about and hurts with black men and women. He hates racism. Jesus cares about the lowly, the despised, the rejected, and the hurting. And do you know, do you know who Jesus was most comfortable around? Broken sinners. Broken, rejected sinners. That's who Jesus was most comfortable around. The world desperately needs people who are like Jesus who walk into the nastiness, who walk into the ugliness, who walk into the darkness and are light who give filthy people what they don't deserve. Because that's us. The world doesn't need more of the world. The world doesn't need more anger. It doesn't need more attacks. It doesn't need more slander or hypocrisy. It's got enough of that already. The world needs people who are radically unlike the world because they're so like an otherworldly Jesus. God's judgment brings justice, and it's only when we grasp that now will we fully partake of it later. Finally, last point, God's judgment is eternal. His judgment is eternal. As I mentioned toward the beginning of the sermon, Isaiah kind of cycles through this favor and judgment. So the beginning of chapter 65 is judgment. 
I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Uh, But the last half of chapter 65 is favor. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And then in chapter 6, he he flips back and he cycles every few verses. So chapter 66, verse 2, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. But then in the very next verse, verse 3, these have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. Uh, Isaiah cycles back to favor later and seen clearly in chapter 66, verse 12. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of nations like an overflowing stream. But then flip to chapter 66, just down in verse 15. God, God, or he switches back to judgment. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. He cycles back again, if you flip over to verse 18, to favor, favor. But surprisingly, the whole book of Isaiah ends as he cycles back to judgment. So look at chapter 66, verse 24. And they shall go out. And look on the dead bodies of men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in an abhorrence to all flesh. Jesus actually quotes Isaiah here in, in Mark chapter 9, verse 48. Jesus says, It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Judgment results in torment and suffering in hell for all eternity. People who do not repent and give their lives over to Christ now have only this life, 80 years, maybe 90 years, and then an eternity separated from God under His wrath. An eternity. This, this is the only chance you've got right now. Today is the only day you've got. Judgment seems so far away. It seems distant. It seems so distant you can wait. Like, like savings bonds, it seems like you can wait until it comes and then cash in and then you're good. But to wait is foolish. J.C. Ryle said, Tomorrow... Tomorrow is the devil's day. Tomorrow belongs to the devil. Don't simply assume that you are saved. Don't walk away with a false assurance. Don't be those about whom Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, but I will say to them, Away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. Don't be like that. Don't wait. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, be assured today that that will not be the case. Don't put it off. To put it off is death. Because God's judgment is eternal, and it's only if we reckon with that now will we truly be ready for it later. Interestingly enough, Isaiah ends in a similar way to how it begins. 
I don't know if you guys remember one of the first sermons uh, that I preached in Isaiah, Isaiah chapters 1 to 5. God is rebuking and and judging his people for their hollow worship. And he says in in chapter 1, verse 13, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So a scathing indictment in chapter 1. But this is the way Isaiah ends in chapter 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. In other words, Isaiah is first and foremost a book about transformation. Isaiah is a book about the God who is holy, who is in the business of transforming and changing hearts. Isaiah is a book about how God takes unholy, ungodly sinners and saves them by his grace and declares them righteous. He does it through ways that are higher than our ways, and he does it through thoughts that are higher than our thoughts. God came down not when we deserved it, but when we were least deserving, when we were at our darkest and carried our sorrows and our burdens. In Christ, God carried our ultimate burden of sin on the cross so that we can sing, I bear it no more. Christian, if you are a Christian, if you are fully trusting in Christ, you can say, I bear it no more. Not an ounce. Not an ounce. It all comes down to how fully you grasp the end. Because if you do, Jesus isn't a token. He's not saying Jesus isn't a token for you just to simply get into heaven. He's not your get into heaven pass or your get into heaven car. Jesus is your life and your breath if you fully grasp this in. So be careful then that you don't make the mistake of treating Jesus as anything less. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you deserve our lives. You deserve our every thought. You deserve our every word. You deserve every ounce of love that we can muster. And how often do we not give you every thought, every word, every action, every ounce of love that we have? Lord, you're not only deserving of it, but Lord, by nature, you are God and you alone are worthy of it. Lord Jesus, we are a stubborn people. A people weighed down by our own flesh. Lord, a people who, without your grace, would look at your word, stare into its depths, and walk away as if we hadn't seen anything and go about our lives. And Lord Jesus, we pray that that would not be the case. Help us to be a people who looks intently at your perfect word and walk away changed. Walk away repentant. Walk away with faith. Walk away loving you more. Walking away seeking you earnestly. Walking away responding to the year of your salvation and the day of your judgment. Lord, let us not be a people who turn a blind eye to these things. 
Lord, let us not be a people who make the mistake of thinking that we're saved to be dreadfully surprised on that last day. Wake us up, Lord Jesus, and help us to be a people who respond to you in repentance and faith. To look forward to the year of your salvation, Lord, and to work because of the day of your vengeance. To work to cultivate holiness in our our lives. To work, Lord, to, to bring the blessing of Christ to the nations. Transform our hearts, Lord Jesus, as you are in the business of doing. Because without you, we are without hope. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.